This is Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears, and I'm joined this week by David Sharty, who's sitting in for Federico as he's away on holiday. David, welcome back to the show. You've been on before. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I'm uh, uh, For those who may not remember me, I help uh, indie app developers with their content and their communication, and I'm a freelance writer in a few different places. Awesome. So, David, this week we're going to dig into a topic that I think is is very timely and I think it's something that has kind of crept up on us a little bit. You know, I think that uh, in in 2018, we're going to sort of take a look at the sort of state of the union on cloud storage. And and it seems to me that we have sort of, if you say you've sle- sleepwalked into something, that has a sort of negative connotation that you didn't pay attention or you didn't care. But I think at some point in the past, maybe two or three years, cloud storage went from being something that you did with maybe your most important files or maybe the files that you were collaborating on with other people and has become the thing that you do with all your files. Do you think that would be a fair kind of assessment of the world? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, everyone that I run into, I, I help a lot of people in the neighborhood, like less tech-savvy people, you know, and they they all have either Google Drive or, or Dropbox, sometimes a Microsoft OneDrive installed and... Mm-hmm. Almost all of their stuff is in there. That's where I see them opening folders to go get, you know, the neighborhood report from the farmer's market or whatever. It's, yeah. it definitely seems like it's everywhere now. Yeah. I remember going, when I went all Dropbox back in the day, this was before iCloud, I think before iCloud Drive as a series product and certainly um, before Google Drive came along and became the mature product that it is today. Uh, I thought I was being incredibly, you know, forward thinking and, and probably I was for the time, but uh, it, it seems to be a sort of standard thing now that that's where your stuff goes. And I think it's remarkable that we seem to have finally solved the problem of syncing files, you know, uh, unless of course you're on, uh, <laughs> unless you're on Microsoft SharePoint, in which case you may have a problem <laughs> uh, sharing files with yourself. I, I've certainly got myself into that trouble before. But in, in large part, we seem to have genuinely solved this problem in a way that isn't catastrophic for most people. Yeah, you. It, it seems like I don't hear about too many, you know, Dropbox lost this whole, you know, month-long folder of, of files. And even, um, like you said, iCloud Drive is, is kind of a serious product now. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like Apple was kind of not a, not a holdout, but they were lagging. They were lagging behind in reliability. Yeah. You know, even back in like the iDisk days, you know, people were really uneasy about putting their stuff in Apple's file storage and mobile me wasn't great. It wasn't built into um, the OSs at the level that, that iCloud is now. So it seems like all the big players have something that you really can rely on now. Yeah. I, I'm just reminded as you're, as you were saying that about iDisk, which brings back some memories, uh, there was a video of Steve Jobs talking not long after he came back to Apple and he was talking about his vision for uh, a world where you could basically sit down at any computer and get your stuff. And he was talking, I think at that time, he was, he was sort of catching it in terms of like uh, shared folders on a network drive, you know, in the kind of NFS style model of, of local mm-hmm. area network sharing uh, in an enterprise situation. But I think it's fascinating that that, that world has actually kind of come to everybody in, in these days. And, uh, you know, you, you can well, have it for pennies a month. Well, almost almost everybody. And that, that frustrates me even more now because iCloud Drive still does not support shared folders with other people or your coworkers or family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the, and you said Apple was lagging. And I think it's, it's probably true that Apple's still lagging, but in different ways now. They, they've caught up in reliability, but they're not 
the workflow aspect of it, I think, is becoming more serious. You know, the people are getting very used to collaborating online on documents and and Google have obviously done it, you know, in the document, whereas, you know, Dropbox was always about the folder level and the file and so on. Uh, but Apple, Apple have kind of done the Google thing where you can collaborate in an individual document, but there's no sort of sustained workflow across across time and across projects. It's all on a per document basis at the moment. And that's uh, that's certainly something that needs to uh, tighten up, I think. Yeah, that's that's true. And that's that's kind of fair. And I should um, I feel like I want to walk that back a little bit because with Apple's approach to stuff, they they want people working in apps not not at the file level, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how far back we want to take this, but people have, and developers have said for a while that it really seems like Apple hates the Finder. You know, they weren't mm. touching Finder for a while. iOS didn't have any kind of file level access, but they added collaboration in the app layer where, you know, they they kind of want people working. So, like, you can open an yeah. iCloud or, a, or an iWork document and share it with someone, but you don't go into, like, the iCloud drive and and add their name to that folder so they do have that at a certain level but it still doesn't work for so many workflows where it's like you know they, they should just kind of get with the program and give us folder access because people mm-hmm. share all sorts of different things not just you know i work documents yeah and that, that kind of feeds into what has always been the challenge with ios you know if you're thinking about ipad productivity that uh that was the original complaint about the iPad, even in the very early days, was that, um, you know, you may have a project and that project may be comprised of one keynote presentation, 10 PDFs and a text document. Um, but on, in, the, in the original iOS model in sort of iOS 6 and 7 days, uh, that, that was scattered across multiple different applications and you had to sort of remember the formats that you had in order to piece together your path backwards through uh, all the different apps that you used. So... There's a bit of, we're now in a kind of world where iOS has got a foot in both camps. You know, the, the collaboration work still exists in the apps, but then you have this whole files app aspect, which we'll talk about later on. But uh, that is starting to bring more of a finder back to the fore as well. And uh, there, there's there's potential wins there and there's potential difficulties as well. Uh, it's a very interesting time for iOS. Yeah, I, I have met some people who uh, are are really happy with, for example, iWork, believe it or not, because, mm-hmm. you know, they they work on documents for themselves and they have to maybe email those to a boss. And then every now and then they have to work on a keynote presentation with another person. And so yeah. they share that with the other people from the the keynote interface. And that works really well. But when you get anywhere beyond that kind of a workflow and you start sharing all kinds of stuff, like you mentioned, you know, it, it still falls apart and gets frustrating. Yeah, I think you you sort of put your finger on it. And this is something that I know people like John Syracuse have critiqued Apple for over many, many years is their their kind of in, inability or unwillingness to recognize that there are groups of people in the world. You know, and, <laughs> and it, it begins with families, you know, and the, we're only just starting to see like uh, family sharing, which is something we can talk about later on as well, for family sharing for storage quotas in iCloud, for example. And uh, then you have, you know, work groups of people and then enterprises of people and things like that. And uh, there are so many different moving parts to that. They're not just about two people working on a file, but you know, who owns the file? Where, where's the ownership and all of that kind of question. And we were talking just before we came on about, um, you know, my life in school this week, we're just a, a week away from school starting. And I was just saying that all I've been doing is Google docs all, all week. And, uh, but we're now using, for example, team drives inside G suite 
And these are different, uh, they're, they're kind of like shared drives in the cloud, if you like. But they neatly solve the problem of who owns a file. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we had a situation, um, well, this year the, the the former head teacher retired and I'm taking over that position. And uh, all of the files that they owned, well, there's no problem because they don't actually belong to that person anymore. They're all in a team drive now. And the files kind of live on in the system separately from any individual account, which is is kind of like the next level of sort of long-term cloud works, uh, cloud workspaces as well. Yeah. Yeah. But then can't you also, I mean, I, I know we need to actually get started with, with sort of the, the, the notes and, and the broader topics, but yeah. can you also run into a situation where if someone leaves a company like that and you don't handle their exit properly, like, could you lose access to a bunch of those files because now you deleted their account or you don't have their password anymore? Yeah, I, I suppose you could. I mean, if if you're dealing with a G Suite situation, like a managed situation, um, what you would do as an administrator is you would suspend their account and then you have control over it and you can change their password and they can't change it again. So, but you, you know, it's always a risk with any network resource that if you have to fire somebody, you actually have to disable their account before you tell them you're going to fire them because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you know, merry hell could be wreaked, you know. And you've, seen, you've seen that on Twitter sometimes with, with companies who fire somebody and don't change the social media password in time. Yep. Uh, and people yep. yeah, make quite a nice exit that way as well. Or that's how people find out they're fired because their password's been changed. Or they try to log on and they're told their account is suspended. And it's, yes, you know, that's, I, I, that's I, the first I understand warning. That's how it works in your government as well these days. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I went there. That was my, yep. my bad. Yep. And with that, we can start the show. <laughs> <laughs> show begin. <laughs> so, uh, David, one of the things that was um, perhaps... In the early days of the cloud, people were unsure about the cost, you know, and, and how much was this going to cost. And I suppose in the early days of Dropbox, it was maybe seen a little bit as a as a luxurious uh, capability to have if you were in a, a team working on businessy type things. But I took a look at the the general sort of uh, dollar per gigabyte per month cost of popular cloud storage services, and I was fascinated to note that they were, you know, incredibly cheap now. You know, we've seen it's hard to kind of make an exact comparison because, you know, there's different tier sizes at different prices and so on. But when it comes down to it, basically you're talking about one cent per gigabyte per month for cloud storage these days, at least from the biggest providers. Yeah, the, the prices have really come down. And it's funny because a few years ago when I was working at 1Password, the CEO was invited out to, I think it was the first or second Dropbox conference. Mm-hmm. And I went out there with uh, Jamie Phelps and we basically put together a presentation and we were going to talk to some people there because one password and Dropbox worked together really well for a while. Mm-hmm. And at the conference, Dropbox gave everyone who attended a coupon for a free hundred gigabytes of space for lifetime. Wow. So if you had the free account, which at the time I think was like five gigs or you could like invite other people and that would add like another gig of, of space to your account. That was like a huge deal back then. I was like, 100 gigs, great. I can fit all my stuff in Dropbox in 100 gigs. You know, I'm done. Yeah. And now, like, you know, you can get, we're looking at the prices here. Uh, you know, iCloud is is 99, uh, it's a buck for 50 gigs, three bucks for 200 gigs. Dropbox, is their lowest price really $8 for a terabyte now? Yeah, yeah, that, that's pounds that price. I couldn't find the dollar price because I think it kept redirecting me to or detecting that it was in the UK, but that's eight pounds. So that's, I think that's about nine ninety nine 
uh, for one terabyte. That's the smallest paid plan you can get in Dropbox now. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's, not that's a terabyte. Around. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, that's that's probably plenty for your average. That's probably way more than your average person actually needs. So we've we've yeah. really come a long way in in cloud storage pricing. Yes, and and I, th- I wonder how much this is a little bit like gym memberships, where if you, you know, you can sell somebody two terabytes on in the knowledge that they will almost never use two terabytes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a bit of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then and then you'll always have your uh, your outliers who are actually using. Mm-hmm. way more than they should be and you know I'm, I'm sure those companies have a way of dealing with those kinds of customers yeah i mean i, I think that's how uh how g suite gets away with giving away free storage for schools is on the basis that almost every account would use practically no storage whatsoever and then there's maybe one person per organization who uses more than 300 gigabytes or something like that i know you know my pal Bradley chambers he has one person in his g suite account that's using 10 terabytes uh, of their unlimited quantity, and uh, nobody's emailed them about it yet. So uh, they're just piling in that raw video uh, and seeing how it gets on there. <laughs> you know, in in terms of this space getting so cheap, one of my favorite things about it, I know we want to talk about a few aspects of, of why the cloud has become so important to us, but one for me is that it's automatic redundancy. Yep. If you know what I mean. So... I remember way back in my early school days, I finally got on board with buying an external hard drive, a regular consumer drive, and I put gigs and gigs of, of backups on that thing. And that was my external drive. And I felt all smart because now I had two copies of everything. But yeah. one day my backup drive died and I lost all of that stuff. And so in trying to fix that, I, I can't remember the details anymore, but I also lost a bunch of it from my main drive. So the bottom line is that I, I actually lost a bunch of stuff. It was gone, gone. Yeah. And, you know, that, that strategy suddenly fell apart. And this is way back before the cloud had started getting important at all. I mean, iDisk might have been around at the time and you get, you know, a, a gig or two online. You know, it was not feasible to put all your stuff in it the way it is these days. But when you have your stuff in Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever these days, it's, you know, it's a giant server room with people who are are trained to handle this stuff. And when, a, when one of their drives dies, they have, you know, dozens of backups and they just toss a new one in and yes, everything works. Yeah, they don't even, they don't even fix it straight away. You know, the software just takes those drives offline and the whole system continues. And one person's job is to go around sweeping up all the drives that are broken. Probably more than yeah. one person, given the scale of these places. But uh, it's, I think you're right. It's very, um, you know, the world you just described there where you had like a, a computer with an external hard drive. To, you know, to me, that seems like completely inadequate now. And that, yeah. was, that was what we, you know, were perfectly happy to do for years and years and years. And we thought that was the height of redundancy. And now, you know, we we expect to have, you know, multiple geographically distributed server farms just at our beck and call, <laughs> you know, and, and of yep. course everybody's got that, you know, and, and in a way it's, it's really democratized information, uh, data security, I suppose, in, in terms of uh, uh, not losing your data and redundancy and all of these things, it's huge. And I remember, you know, I've been involved in IT for schools for many, many years, and I think... Well, I've been doing that kind of job majorly for about 10 years and going to different meetings where people have been debating whether or not the school should move from on-premise to the cloud. And in the years from sort of, I don't know, 2012 to 2015, maybe, there was there was endless debates about, you know, 
is it secure enough for us to go to the cloud and stuff like that? And and eventually I, I sort of said to some guys, I said, look, you are radically overestimating how good you are at security compared to these people. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the only reason you've not been hacked is because nobody's tried, you know, and, and you know, if, if you're like one person working in a school as I am, you know, I just know for a fact that there's no way I can provide the kind of monitoring and security and expertise that you can get with a G Suite or an iCloud or something like that. And, you know, yeah, people are often yeah, a little too uh, overcautious about or, or they overestimate what they can do and they underestimate what a company like Google or Apple can do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's another just sort of baked in. You almost kind of take it for granted if, if you don't think about it. But yeah. yeah, who wants to become their own security and, and hardware uh, professional, you know, having to deal with this stuff? You know, let let the actual people who are trained to do this, you know, do it for yeah. you. Yeah, and, and spread that cost over hundreds of millions of users as well. And, and not like 500 in your school. Right. Yeah. So I suppose on that topic, David, your your feelings on cloud privacy at the moment, how how does that feel from, from an American perspective? It's... I know here it's it's complicated and and not being a lawyer trying to follow these topics as a you know a regular civilian can can be uh tricky because the people who report on these stories and and these laws often don't understand what they're reporting on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it it can make it difficult, but you know like for example, uh since I know the most about like Apple's setup iMessage is encrypted end-to-end. So if you use Apple's communication between Apple devices with the people that you know, those messages are encrypted end-to-end. However, and that and that means Apple can't access those. However, your iMessages are also backed up in your iCloud backups on mm-hmm. Apple servers. Those backups are encrypted, but Apple does have the key to those backups. And it can hand over those backups in certain cases when the law has a proper warrant and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think like most other companies in the US, they now have to publish a yearly report of how many requests for those backups they get from mm-hmm. uh, authorities, basically, local and, and federal agencies. But it gets it gets really messy. And I'm, you know, I work in tech. It's it's part of my job to follow this stuff. And it's it's um it's getting difficult. But Overall, I get the impression that most of these companies are in the business of earning our trust. And so where it makes sense, they they protect this information very well. And in terms of when authorities actually have a valid reason to access some of this data, what they can hand over, they do. And mm. that's yeah. that's about as far as I understand it at this point. Yes, it seems in a way that the scale of cloud storage is such that um, you're you're unlikely to be swept up in a fishing expedition because the scale is just so great, you know. And and to be, they can't just come along and say, "Oh, we'd like everybody's records," you know. Uh, right. There, ha- there has to be, you know. We've been through this in the UK as well with um, uh, various laws in the past, and also the the GDPR of of uh, blessed recent memory as well. Um, but specifically with earlier laws, they they can't just say, "Oh." Uh, let's have everything. You know, they have to convince a judge to say, we think this person has this information which is relevant to this offence because of these reasons. And, and a judge has to give some oversight to that as well. So uh, I hope I'm not being willfully naive on this, but that's my best understanding <laughs> of it as well. 
Well, and, and now that you bring that up, I, I remember a case that just happened, I think this week or, or last week. Well, it didn't just happen, but the, the news came out about it. I guess a little while ago in a U.S. state, there was a series of bank robberies committed by a few people. And I guess they hit multiple banks. I want to say like eight or nine banks. Okay. And the authorities investigating the case, in order to try and determine who it was and where they might have gone afterwards, they asked Google to share location data for every mm. device it had on record in those locations at the times that the banks were hit. Interesting. So I don't know what the radiuses were of, of you know, the bank in the area that they were asking for, but mm -hmm. they, they sent this formal request to Google and just said, give me, give us all the data on everybody who is in those, lo those locations. Whether they're a suspect or not, it doesn't matter. Mm. And if I recall the story right, Google just didn't respond for a while at first. They just didn't even respond to it. <laughs> and yeah, so panic. there's so much going on there. I haven't read, I haven't found like a legal analysis of the situation, but this is an official request from a government agency in the United States. You know, isn't Google obligated to respond somehow? But apparently they just completely ignored the request at first. Mm -hmm. And then the agency submitted sort of of a more focused request later and Google mm -hmm. finally responded to that and said, you know, they're not going to do it. And then the agency found a different way of identifying the robbers and, and actually moving on with the case. But, you yes, know, I, I don't know how law, the law works at that level. Like, isn't Google supposed to be penalized for just not responding at all? Don't they have to respond by law? It's, you know, that's out of my league. Yeah, the, there's definitely some things. And there's also these various things where they're, they're maybe not allowed to say what they, they said you know, back to the authorities as well. That's right. There was a gag order too. Yeah. yeah. So Google couldn't even talk about it. There was an interesting case just the other day in the UK, and this, this is on a different topic from cloud storage, but it just gives you another sense of um, how much can be known about you. You know, there, there was a, a, a an incident that was being treated as a terrorist attack in London a couple of days ago, where somebody, uh, as is the European style at the moment, uh, drove their car into a crowd of people. And with within less than I think maybe twelve hours, they had the police had been able to use the, the we have a system in the UK called ANPR, which is uh, automatic number plate recognition. And what that does is there are cameras everywhere on the road network that that will uh, sense the number plate on your car, and then so they were able to reconstruct the, the route this person had taken, where they had driven from Birmingham all the way to London when he had driven there, and and when this attack had taken place. So. You know, I, I slightly feel as well if people are being, you know, particularly paranoid about their security, particularly in the UK, which, as far as I understand, is the is the surveillance camera capital of the world. Um, you have no idea how much data is being captured about you every day with with all of the the movements that you make as well. Yeah. So as as a you know regular individual citizen, it's these are. They're difficult questions to ask, and I feel like there isn't a great answer yet, at least that I've found. I'd, I'd love to hear mm -hmm. if there is, but it seems like there are privacy guards in place in, in most countries where your data is, is reasonably secure and private in those clouds. And it it definitely seems like with the popularity of all this, the, the convenience has vastly won out. You know, we're all yes. putting so much stuff in these clouds, mm -hmm. despite not being that confident in, in how it works when it comes to who can access it. But yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know where that all goes. You know, uh, you know, we, we, we've wondered for a while, will there be some kind of privacy disaster that will make people feel like they have to pull back from this? But it seems like uh, every every privacy or data misuse situation that happens online, people just do not care. They, they literally do not care. You know, I mean, we've been through the Facebook, the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Some people got angry about it, but, you know, I, not many people have come off Facebook, you know, and Facebook stock price is doing just fine. So uh, we'll see what it takes. It, I think, I think it's it's slightly different than that. It it feels like when it, when I've tried to talk to people who you know maybe barely follow this stuff, but they care about mm-hmm. something like say Facebook or what Dropbox does with their data. It. I get the sense that they they care once you actually inform them of this in like a in a way that they can understand but they they don't have the time to not everybody can can run out and start becoming an activist for yeah. every little thing that matters to them but I I get the sense that they they would like this improved they would like whatever the problem is fixed they'd like Facebook to stop handing our data out to everybody through an API mm-hmm. and so it it feels kind of like they care they just can't you know pick up a sign and start marching every weekend. Yeah. And uh, to, to go back to GDPR for a second, I think there are, you know, I've, I've been critical of GDPR for some of the, uh, the, the absurd angels dancing on the head of a pin situations that it can put people in. But I think that the, the broad brush idea of GDPR is a good one that you have, the consumer has control, but uh, you know, I, I don't know if you see this when you, if you're not browsing the web from the EU, but you know, every single website you go to now, you're basically going to sign a contract before you can read the page. And that's, that's, <laughs> yep. a, that's effectively what you're doing is you're signing, you're you're giving some kind of legal consent before you look at any web page, and and it, it almost feels like it's ruined the the internet. But um, at, at the bigger picture, and I think when we talk about something like cloud storage, I think GDPR is actually very powerful here because what it does is it 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 prevents you know open abuse of these things. And I think the companies we're talking about here, the iCloud and the Dropbox and the Google Drive, they're very responsible companies, but not everybody necessarily is. And particularly as when, if times get economically tougher, people may be more willing to take to take risks. And I think that's one of the big things that GDPR is kind of trying to, you know, put a thumb on the scale against people doing that because the, the regulatory costs of breaching people's data privacy is uh, are, are very high now. Yeah, and that's in in the enforcement side of things is something that I'm I'm curious about as well because this stuff is such an intangible topic for most people and yeah. the best you usually hear about when a company is is caught violating something and actually punished for it is they're usually fined, you know, yes. by the government. And so we usually don't see what happens to that money. If there was some kind of uh, civil lawsuit and a settlement, you know, you get a check for like five dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't. It's it's this stuff is so intangible, and and the when you see anything done about it, it's uh, it's hard to kind of equate the two. Like I get a check for five dollars, or like a Visa mm-hmm. card, you know, coupon for Amazon. Like it just doesn't really feel like someone got busted. You know, and something really w- was done wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think all class action lawsuits give you a sense of your insignificance in the world, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you know, Google hit with enormous fine, you get two dollars. You know, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, that's how much I matter to Google. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, we could talk about privacy and, and this whole aspect forever, and, and GDPR could take out a month's worth of podcast, but we should we should roll on a little bit, David. I think, and, and talk bandwidth. 
I mean, I think this is something else that has brought the cloud much closer to everybody is the idea that uh, even your mobile phone, your personal hotspot is now perfectly good for working, uh, you know, for days at a time, even on yeah. cloud-based systems. Absolutely. Uh, data plans have gotten so great. And I know the U.S. has has lagged behind that. They're they're still so expensive here, but we've we've finally gotten, you know, plans with plenty of data have finally gotten relatively affordable, especially if mm-hmm. you have a smartphone already, which almost all of us do now. And the thing I noticed the most was when language in, in app descriptions started switching from, you know, you could download your document and work on it, and then it syncs it back up, and they they've removed that process to, you're just working on your document now. And when you save it, it's saved and it's backed up everywhere. Like they don't even bother explaining yeah. this this dual existence of the document anymore. Just when you make a change, it's up in the cloud, poof, done. Yes, it's, it's saved straight away. And, and by saved, they don't mean just to local storage, they mean to the cloud. I mean, I was talking to a teacher in school today and, and she was saying, look, you know, I was away for a couple of days and I was working on my hotspot and I never got anywhere near my data cap, you know, and she only had a cap of like two or three gigabytes. And we were just saying, you know, like if you're just doing kind of productivity work, you know, gigabytes worth of transfers is a huge amount of work getting done. You know, if you're not, stre- <laughs> if you're not streaming, uh, if you're not streaming video or uploading and downloading raw photographs or whatever, if you're working on some documents and syncing some stuff back and sending some emails and doing a bit of Slack, you can go a long way on a few gigabytes of traffic, you know? Uh, so yeah, that that is, and the, the speed of it as well, even for relatively large files, uh, even on cellular networks, it's, it's good. And I think also apps have gotten more uh, efficient with the way that they use that stuff as well. You know, that, that period we went through where people were being on, were on very metered data connections, that had a good effect on the way that people programmed these systems to, to make them not be just absolutely profligate with data and, and the only exception now is when you connect a Mac to your hotspot and Dropbox just has you just has its way with your connection, you know, it's uh, uh, slow that down a little bit. But in general, mobile devices, particularly iPad, for example, you know, I, I put a, a prepaid SIM in my iPad about once a year and just sort of sip it as I go. And that's <laughs> that, that does the job. Yeah, it's it's become trivial to do stuff like, um, you know, I, at least in the U.S., you can't really add like your Mac to a, a, a data plan yet. There's some laptops that have 4G in it, but they don't mm-hmm. seem that popular. But with our mobile plan, we're with Verizon. We just uh, my iPad is on our Verizon plan. I think it's like 10 bucks a month. And I just I I work everywhere. I rarely use public Wi-Fi hotspots these days. I'm just always using 4G. And yes. I don't really need to think about it. Verizon's never called me about going way over my limit. It just works just about everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm on a 30 gigabyte plan just for comparison. And uh, th- this month for the first time in about two and a half years, I managed to use it all up. And the only reason I used it all up was because the way the calendar fell and the billing cycle fell, I had been away from home three weeks out of the four in the billing cycle so i had used like three weeks of living off of it was enough so i guess i'm sort of averaging about 10 gigabytes a, a week when i'm away from home and of course the kids want to use your hotspot for different things as well so uh they, they get in there and take a chunk too so just because I've, I've heard what data plans in your neck of the woods can cost why don't you enlighten the u.s audience how much or how little you pay for that 30 gigabytes uh 18 pounds a month wow. which is what maybe twenty five, twenty seven dollars, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So I'm not intimately familiar with every carrier, but I've been doing a little bit of research lately. I'm paying 
$100 on our family plan for, it's the quote-unquote unlimited data plan, but the fine print says that once you hit 20 gigs, Mm -hmm. they have the right to slow you down, throttle your traffic, downsize videos, stuff like that, if they if they need to for network congestion. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big difference, isn't it? I think that the upside to what you get for that though, is that you got a much faster 4g rollout than we did. You know, we, oh, I, really? I, I still don't see 4g everywhere on my network. Oh, wow. You know, no. And we, we get 3g sort of plus if you like, or three, 3.5g, you know, so the bandwidth, I mean, on a speed test on a th- when I see 3g in, in the menu bar, I would maybe be getting like, uh, 10 megabits 10 to 12 megabits oh my gosh Um, okay but uh, it's nothing like what lte is like in the us so although your data plans are expensive you have uh you have benefited from reinvestment of that money in a way that in the uk we haven't uh, because we're paying so little for it well not not to get too far off topic here but I, i feel like there's a little bit of a division in how those technologies worked because here in the us 3g i was on a lot of different carriers with 3g you're Mm -hmm. you're you were kind of almost talking modem speeds, mm. like old school dial up modem speeds. And then when 4G came along, it was a huge leap for us. Yes. But 3G here was terrible. Yes. No, we, we've, many of our networks seem to have been able to do things to their 3G systems that were, I, I don't know whether it's a labeling thing or they don't put 4G in the, in the toolbar, but I still, I, I go between three and four G and I don't notice a huge difference. I think it may also be more different on different networks in the UK. I'm on, I'm hmm. on a network called three and they're, uh, they, they've always been quite good. You know, they're quite a kind of data focused network, but they're, um, they're not really at the four G level of maybe some other networks are, uh, but I stick with them for other reasons. I wonder, I wonder for them if it was a branding thing, you know, they wanted to stick with three G cause they were three. You know, Possibly moving, moving to four G would just ruin everything. <laughs> yeah, they need to upgrade their their network name as well. Never mind about five G, which is starting to to come out. You know, forget yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that'll be nice when it comes in twenty forty. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's yeah. absolutely helped getting back on track. the The bandwidth mm-hmm. aspect has absolutely helped with removing that friction of having to worry about if a file was downloaded or if it's done syncing or or those things. You just work on most devices and in most situations and it just takes care of it yeah we've talked a little bit about collaboration and i think uh, we can probably you know leave that where it is in terms of what we've already said about collaboration you've got a little bit more of the notes but I, i feel like google has is probably the most mature in terms of their collaboration particularly if you're in a g suite situation where you and this is kind of where the the beauty of this has started to bear fruit for us in school is that all of our teachers, like we know everybody's email address and that is also their G Suite identity. And that that solves so many problems, you know. And, yeah. and basically everything that Google brings into G Suite, we're just like, right, we're adopting that, we're adopting that, we're adopting that. You know, and things like um, uh, Google Hangouts Chat is the new thing, the newest thing that we've adopted. And that is basically Google's Slack-like competitor um, in the same way that Microsoft Teams is Microsoft's version um, and we, we just adopted it because, you know, it was just there and it was, it was already working because all of our accounts were in it, you know, um, it, it was very interesting to have that come along. The, the one thing I will say about collaboration is that I, I feel like there's a little bit of a, I want to say lag in the adoption between cloud storage, which, which really feels like it, it, it's gotten pretty much everywhere at this point, but collaboration and working on documents, say, at the same time, 
or yeah. just not emailing them back and forth. I feel like collaboration has actually lagged behind with a lot of people because, yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, I've even, you know, I'm a freelance writer, so I, I work with a few different publications and companies and I still am frequently asked to email a rich text or word doc version of, of whatever I'm writing instead of throwing it up on Google or OneDrive or, or whatever. That happens surprisingly often, especially from tech publications. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of that is tied to people's unwillingness to give up Microsoft Word. I mean, we, we do most of our stuff in all of our new documents, or at least I say all of our new documents, at least the ones that I make begin as Google Docs now. Um, because and, and it's almost like viscerally upsetting to me when it's not a Google Doc. You know, <laughs> and I, I spent a week or two during the summer just like finding all our old policy documents, which were some were pages, some were in Word, some only had PDFs of, and making them all into like pristine Google Docs. And I was like, that is what I'm defending, right? This is my little castle and I am defending this. And uh, we're not sending copies of this anywhere. This is the one file and I'm trying to get everybody to delete their local versions of whatever it is they've got. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, I think we're, we're doing quite well in that in, in the sense that most people know how to get into a Google Doc or Google Spreadsheet and look at it or print it or comment on it or edit it and so on. But uh, what we've, what we've, I've started to promote to people is instead of emailing me about something that's in the document, like actually put a native comment in the document and mention an <clears> email address in there. And that's starting to become a workflow that is, is bearing a lot of fruit at the moment. And I'm looking forward to getting more people into that over the year. I, I wrote a piece about that a little while ago about how much, if you can get your, your team, your friends or your organization or whatever into that workflow, it can really be a game changer because you keep the conversation with the document. Yeah. Instead of having to go in and, and dig four months back in email to find that thing someone said about a document, you just open the document. Maybe you have it open sitting in a tab mm -hmm. and those notes or the changes or the questions, whatever that people have about it, are just there with the document. And it's it's it just helps in so many little ways that that really add up. But um I I do wanna mentioned something i so i was out of the office scene for a long time i used it a little bit in school and then once i became a, a writer at a couple publications like nobody really used it we all just wrote in like rich text or plain text but these days microsoft office is to its credit i feel like it's really caught up it feels like they, they lagged quite a bit on this this collaboration thing but mm -hmm. we actually have an office subscription right now i don't know if that means i, I need to get kicked off the show <laughs> no, and that's okay. you need to I find another to. host but <laughs> um we we have one and it works it's it's still an app it's a local app that you open like any other but mm -hmm. there's a share button in it it's it's very much like iWork the iWork suite actually there's like a people button and you click that and you you mention other people's email addresses and it sends them a link and they can open it up and you can collaborate very much like you're used to in in Google Drive and and elsewhere I, I feel like it just took yeah. a while to get there and a lot of people mm -hmm. are on very old maybe they're hanging on to like older versions of office because maybe they don't want to pay the subscription but they they have it now they're they're there it's available mm -hmm. yeah i wonder if, if maybe the subscription cost aspect of it is holding more of this adoption back particularly could in, be. In, in microsoft centric environments as well yeah, very well could be. I don't know if Microsoft has a free version that people can use like Google Docs. You know, all you need is a free Google account. You don't mm -hmm. even need a domains account. Yeah. That that might be a barrier for sure because 
the cheapest I remember when I signed us up is I think four bucks a month and you get yeah. an email address and then access to all their office web apps. And then if you want the native apps, it's, you know, it's you got to go up yeah. to like seven or eight bucks a month. Yeah. 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 Um, I was going to say something about that. I've lost my train of thought. Anyway, David, this has been really interesting. We should keep this going, but I need to press the money button for a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. We have two for the show, and the first one is Pingdom. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom, the company who make website performance monitoring really easy. Everyone loves a fast website, and Pingdom are helping to keep your favorite sites online. Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack, these are just a few of the companies that trust Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. Because websites can get pretty complicated, but you can monitor any site transaction with Pingdom. Stuff like user registrations, logins, checkouts, and much more. Pingdom care about your users having the smoothest site experience possible, and if disaster strikes, you'll be the first to know. It's super easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is your URL, and they'll take care of the rest. That is it. So go to pingdom.com slash reallyfm right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. When you sign up, use the code CANVAS at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of Really FM. So David, I think we should maybe move on a little bit on the topic here and, and ask ourselves about photographs, because I think that was, there was a, a strange period in the middle there, wasn't there, where, uh, like, what do you do with all the data that your camera generates was one of the most challenging topics in all of computer science, it seemed, <laughs> and, and nobody in the industry could solve it. And eventually both Google and Apple decided to bite the bullet and do their own solutions. Yeah, it's it's funny because you're you're right in the notes here that that people treat their photos differently. They do different things with their photos than than their documents and a lot of other types of files. And that smartphones when they exploded, they really did. And the camera was and still is probably the biggest feature for everyone. And so it it needed a serious answer because I my. I hope she's not listening to the show, but my mother-in-law refuses, refuses to pay even a dollar a month for cloud storage, mm. which means she has, I think, a 16 or a 32 gigabyte iPhone. I forget. But the way she treats her photography is she will still manually plug into her Mac to sync stuff up to, uh, to photos, okay. but she's not going through iCloud anymore. And... If she starts running out of space, she just deletes old photos. Which I, I haven't deleted a photo in quite a long time. Right. It, yeah. It's it's kind of heartbreaking to me because I've watched her delete like old family event stuff that you you might want somewhere down the road. You know, you don't yeah. you don't know, so you want to keep it around. And it's it's this weird piece of friction in terms of uh, you know she's she's from a different generation and you just mm -hmm. you don't you don't spend money on stuff like that, but. It's it's a it's a unique way that she's trying to deal with that problem of of running out of out of space. But yeah, I mean, you have iCloud Photos now and Google Photos. Uh, Flickr is is making a comeback. Um, mm -hmm. I think I think more people than we probably realize probably use Facebook Photos as sort of their their online directory because Facebook can do the same thing. It can suck up all your photos and it'll store mm -hmm. everything for free. And, and Dropbox will still offer that as well whenever you install install the app again you know, oh, yeah. to pick up all your stuff too so I mean everybody wants that data you know but I think uh, for me always as an iOS user the the iCloud photo library has always been the primary one because 
it's it's still integrated with the other elements that you would use if you're using your iPad for productivity, for example. Like your, uh, you know, a lot of people use Google Photos, and that's great as a way to kind of offload your data and free up space on your device. But with iCloud Photo Library, it's sort of still on your device, and I think that's this is actually one of the best cloud services that Apple does yeah. in term in terms of just they actually have more or less erased the boundary between what's local and what's remote. Really Absolutely. And, um, and and that's not always evident everywhere, but I think iCloud Photo Library does one of the best jobs of that because you can still, for example, open up Keynote and pick some photographs and they just come back down from the cloud and they go straight into your into your presentation. Uh, and that's uh, that's always been the reason for me why, even though I do use Google Photos as a kind of second backup, I don't really, I don't consider it primary in any way. And I imagine that's probably true for most iOS users. This is related to a frustration I've had for a while, I think at least since iOS 9, and I've I've talked to developers on and off about it, but I think one of the things holding other photo services back is third parties who do not adopt the new file picker that showed up when Apple introduced document providers. Yes. So, so I know I'm throwing a lot around a lot of weird terms, but you know, with certain apps these days, when you want to upload a file, let's say probably a photo, you tap it, and you're you're no longer kicked right into your your photo library and list of albums. You get the option to browse library, which means you go to iCloud Photos or the the local Photos app, or I I don't remember what the options called, but it's maybe it's just browse or something. And if you tap that, now you get uh, the Files app. You get the file picker from the Files app, which yes. means you can grab anything from your iCloud drive and you can grab anything from the other cloud services that are on your device. Dropbox, OneDrive, I think some of the other alternative photo services all plug into that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of third-party developers on iOS who have not adopted that new file picker. And so you're locked into iCloud Photo Library. So kind of like what you mentioned, it's it's so integrated into iOS and it's been that way for so long I think a lot of people, and especially developers, just haven't thought about the fact of, yeah, what if I could just get into the quote-unquote file system and pull in my Google Photos or my Shutterfly Photos or whatever other service you want to use? And I I feel like it's a roadblock, mostly from the community right now, that I I really wish we could improve. Yeah, I think there's a couple of aspects to that there. And one one is there's an API called PhotoKit, which I think came around, you mentioned iOS 9, I think it came around that time. Uh, and PhotoKit, you know that an application supports PhotoKit if when you try to browse your photos, you don't just get given the camera roll, but you can also browse um, your 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 album structure, your folder structure that you have inside the Photos app. Mm-hmm. And that, that's an app that's using PhotoKit properly. Whereas so many apps still are doing like a pre-iOS 9 thing, a pre-iCloud photo library thing where you can only see the camera roll and nothing else you can't browse and, and it's sort of like a unification of all your albums you know it's like i mean i've got thirty thousand pictures in iCloud photo library it's just this enormous scrolling list that you just you know you can't use any structure with it but then you're right there there may be other places that you want to get a photograph from as well you know if you're working on a project and you've got a bunch of photographs in a dropbox folder for example that you need to use um you don't want to have to go and bring them all into your photo library and then put them into your application so right. often, yeah, copy and paste tends to be a useful way to do, to solve that problem. Just in case people want to see an example of, of what I'm talking about, because it can sometimes be hard to find this, try creating a new message in the mail app on, on uh, iPhone or iPad mm-hmm. and tap anywhere in the body and the little uh, 
menu will pop up with like bold and formatting. If you swipe across a couple times and go to the next section, there's the option to insert photo or video. Don't tap that. Right next to it is insert attachment. If you mm -hmm. tap that, you'll see the basically the files sheet picker pop up where you'll see your recent files from iCloud Drive. It defaults to iCloud Drive. Of course, you're on an Apple device. But if you tap the uh, the um, the the other tab at the bottom, now you can get to all your other cloud locations, Dropbox, whatever other services you have in, installed and and available. And that that could really open up integrating some of these other services almost at at the convenience level that that iCloud Photos is. Yeah, and I think it's it's possibly also on these other services to do a little bit more in their integration with the files picker, but I think in in your point is well made in general that uh, apps could be more holistic in their idea of where photographs come from in iOS these days. You know, there was a time, and it was correct at the time, that where you got files was the photo library or, or the yeah. camera roll as it was back in the day. But now there's there are many other sources for, for pictures as well. Um, I just wanted to mention, I, Google Photos and iCloud Photo Library can coexist quite happily. You know, I, I use both and... Uh, of course, iCloud Photo Library is more integrated at a system level, so it will do its backup in the background and things, whereas you need to sort of open the Google Photos app to get it to do its job. But it, Google Photos does actually understand iCloud Photo Library quite well, and it will uh, force a download of the full resolution image before it uploads and so on. It won't just use local thumbnails. So they, they can coexist uh, reasonably oh, wow. well, which is quite nice. So do you pay for storage on, on both services? Uh, I, I pay for it as part of my iCloud program, but I don't pay for it in Google Photos because um, I actually upload it to my school account. So it, it, oh. it, come, it comes under part of our unlimited storage, which is part of why I'm doing it, of course. But uh, yeah, that works. That works. Is it well. is it to have like a, a backup of your backup or are you using Pretty those much. photos yeah. in, you know, Google's other services? Uh, not, not particularly, although, I mean, they are sort of accessible to me in my school work, if you like, you know. Um, I, I think one of the one thing I would like to be able to do would be to actually sort of optionally redirect where pictures go from the camera. You know, I think it would be very interesting if you could take a picture with the iOS camera and then the the picture automatically goes to Google Photos because sometimes in, in the school context we sort of want that where the picture maybe it's a picture you take for school and it stays right in the school's managed data world, if you like, mm. and in the school's cloud, you know, that kind of question. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that gets into that topic of, of you know, defaults on iOS and how little control we have of them, and that might be a whole separate show. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, let, let me just tell you about our second sponsor, and then we'll we'll get into the second half of the show. Uh, I say the second half of the show, we've been talking for a while and it's been great. Uh, but we have a new sponsor for the show this week. This uh, this episode of Canvas is also brought to you by Molecule. Now, I'm sure you've spent a lot of effort making your home comfortable and welcoming and maybe even a smart home. But have you ever thought about the air pollutants inside your home? Because without them, you could sleep better, feel better and live better. And Molecule is the only air purifier that actually destroys pollutants. Let me tell you why that's important. More than 80% of people living in urban areas that monitor pollution are exposed to air quality that doesn't meet recommendations set by the World Health Organization. Worst news is that indoor air can be up to five times worse than outdoor air. So to rest easy knowing you're breathing clean air, you need Molecule. Molecule are introducing a breakthrough science that's finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecule. 
at a molecular level. Let me try that again. And their many, many happy customers are reaping the benefits with customers saying they're able to breathe through their noses for the first time in years. Molecule has a clean design with a high quality experience. It's even been described as the apple of air purifiers and has been verified by science, but more importantly, tested by real people. They've already helped allergy and asthma sufferers cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. The air purifier, the molecule air purifier, is whisper quiet, energy efficient, made for rooms of all sizes, portable and connected. You can control molecule using a touchscreen display or remotely using an iPhone or Android app. You need to go and look at how the molecule air purifier is built to see what it can do and see how sleek looking this thing actually is. Head to molecule.com. That's molecule with a K, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com to take a look around. And when you make your first order, use the code canvas for $75 off. That's canvas for $75 off your order. Our thanks to Molecule for their support of this show. So David, let's wrap up here. And, and I have this, you know, we occasionally have this sort of theory corner in, in Canvas. And uh, my theory on this whole topic is that basically everything is the cloud now. You know, we, I described my iPhone to somebody a while ago as being like a, a remote control for cloud services, you know. And I, I don't know, I mean, I still back up my iPhone, but I don't really know why, apart maybe convenience, you know, uh, so I don't have to re-download all the apps again if something went wrong. But in terms of actually losing data, I I wouldn't need to. Yeah, I've I've run into that same situation where a little while ago, I realized that I needed more storage on iCloud more than I needed it on Dropbox. So I started moving everything to iCloud simply out of, practicality not necessarily like some kind of hashtag brand uh yeah uh, loyalty but after that i i got all my stuff into icloud i use icloud photo library i've got about 110 gigs of photos in there i realized i still had a time machine uh drive hooked up to our router for backups but i was feeling so confident in icloud that i started second guessing whether i still needed to be running time machine backups for for my Mac because mm-hmm. both of my iOS devices all also back up to iCloud. And I, I think that's definitely where things are going. I know a lot of people live pretty much in, in the cloud now, but that that also begs the question of like, why do people still buy, you know, larger drives? You know, why would you spend mm-hmm. the extra money on the 64 or the 128 gig iPhone? Or I guess it's a 256 now. Yeah, 256. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me personally and and some people that I I've I've talked to, I get the impression that there's still enough things, enough times and situations where the network does stumble or maybe yes. fall flat where there is stuff that you want to have downloaded for sure. You want to have that space locally and mm-hmm. Anecdotally, I've run into a couple situations where uh, I think I bought movie tickets once and the theater that we went to had awful reception. And I was just like, well, I got the, you know, the PDF or whatever in my email. I'll just grab it when we get to the theater. Well, for whatever reason, my phone hadn't automatically checked email in the background and it didn't download that that attachment. So I I had to get out of line, go outside, (laughs) download the email, get the attachment and come back in. And it was you know, it's just, it was silly. Um, yeah. But it, it could have been a much worse situation. You know, maybe I'm mm-hmm. trying to identify myself at an airport or something. And mm. so 
and there's also things like for me, uh, you know, when we travel, my wife and I like to have some movies on my phone when we want to relax in the uh, the hotel. Mm-hmm. There's there's no way I'd try streaming, you know, the movie we want to watch over Netflix, you know, in the hotel. So I I download those off of iTunes or Netflix lets you download some things now and keep it offline. So I, I think there's still enough situations for for some people. You know, I, I have a 256 gig iPhone for these and, and other reasons, but we're we're definitely heading that way. Absolutely. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, I, I actually started uh, reducing the size of devices that I buy. So I had been going up and up and up as the devices got bigger to the point where I had a 128 gig iPhone 7 was my last iPhone before the iPhone 10. And this time I only have a 64 gig iPhone 10. And mm. that that is working fine for me. It's very interesting. You know, I, I don't know that 32 would be okay anymore, but you know, 64 is is largely fine thanks to iCloud Photo Library primarily. Um, what's blowing that up now is that I've started sort of uh, downloading a lot of YouTube videos because YouTube Premium is now available in the UK. And that's, uh, YouTube are nothing like as efficient in storage as Netflix are. Because one of the things you mentioned there was, of course, you know, downloading from Netflix, and that's something we all wanted for years. But it's been surprising to me how little data Netflix needs to download for that to work well. But YouTube is just like, here's the raw file, you know, <laughs> go crazy. Yeah. Um, maybe it's because I'm downloading long things as well. But uh, I think that it's an interesting situation. And for most people who are just on home Wi-Fi most of the time, you know, I don't see that as being something that's particularly, uh, right. particularly limiting for them. So it's interesting to see where this is going. I mean, my iPad is still 256, you know, and, and primarily that's for caching tons of stuff offline when I go on an international flight or something like that. But I think we're we're definitely getting to the point where except, perhaps it be fair to say, except in situations of going abroad where data is still astronomically expensive. Yeah. Uh, it, it's perhaps, you know, for most people, we're, we're citizens of the cloud now. And it's it's good that we have the flexibility too, because looking through my apps right now, like iCloud and Dropbox, they all have a mechanism, some kind of mechanism for making sure you keep stuff offline. Mm-hmm. So like desktops, a Mac, you know, usually by default, they're set up to just download everything. And if you yeah. really have stuff that would exceed the size of your local drive, you can, you know, turn off certain folders or, or whatever. But on, on iOS, those apps usually use some type of like, algorithmic intelligence, machine learning, whatever, uh, flux capacitor to automatically figure out, you know, what files it thinks you want to keep offline and it keeps some of those offline, but but you have that choice to be like, no, absolutely keep this one around. Yeah. So you have that flexibility over that storage, but eventually I'd, I'd see it slowly going to you really not needing to do that anymore in a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be fascinating to hear from people as to how they're how their lives are changing because of cloud storage. I think that uh, more and more, maybe, or less and less perhaps, people are are having these catastrophic data loss incidents. You know, I, th- I think it's good to see that sort of declining because we've all sat at the Genius Bar beside somebody crying because they've, <laughs> they've lost precious photographs that can never yeah. be recovered, you know, and it's, it's a horrible thing to see people go through because, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, you cannot get those pictures back. And you can never recreate them. I mean, even a a movie library or a photo, a music library, you can just buy it again. You know, okay, it's expensive, yeah. but you can buy it again. But you can't make your child be one year old again and take them back. <laughs> and, and you can't do your wedding photographs again. You know, and, and photographs have always been so precious. And I think that's a, 
it's good to see more people starting to use that. I, I, two trends I feel like I've seen are people either get sort of indoctrinated through work because their work adopts the cloud and they, they mm -hmm. train everyone on it, or maybe you get a trial by fire or whatever. And so that helps you get into that mindset of how convenient it can be and all the other advantages or kind of like you were mentioned, it, it's some kind of a tragedy where I've had a couple friends and family and I've even helped a couple people on Twitter, you know, like when a thread goes around, you know, someone's drive crashed, you know, is there anything that mm. we can do to, to help them? They'll come to me when they've, they've had some kind of a tragedy, you know, their laptop blew up or their phone died and, you know, they didn't have iCloud and those kinds of things. And they finally say, you know, maybe it's finally time for me to, to look at this cloud stuff. Like, can you teach me? Yeah. And so it's, it's sort of that unfortunate situation of it's it's there they've they've heard about it because they they usually use some kind of terminology like can you teach me about that cloud thing or you know how to mm. use dropbox but they, they didn't take the time you know to to learn how to do it or or maybe they couldn't you know this stuff is not as intuitive for for everybody as as it might be for some of us but some kind of a tragedy brings them to that idea and they they finally go okay now it's time to get onto the cloud and they, they make a very deliberate effort in yes. their sort of rebuilding process. Yeah, and I think we're also getting past the point, David, where uh, some people were maybe limited by the hardware that they had as well. I remember a couple of years ago, I had this situation where a, a teacher in the school, she only had an iPhone 4, and because of that, it couldn't go past iOS 7, I think. And oh. because of that, she couldn't get onto iCloud Photo Library and because of that, and because of that, and you can sort of see where I'm going with this, yeah, you know, there was yeah. a whole kind of uh, chain of dependencies because she had this piece of hardware and it was very <laughs> full of stuff. It was an eight gig version as well. Uh, there, was, there was basically no forward path for her. It was, it was very, very difficult. So I had to actually, I used um, uh, image capture on the Mac to pull off all her photographs and then upload them to her iCloud account through a browser just to free <laughs> up enough space on her phone to get other oh, things wow. to happen. But as, as those devices have started to age out and, and more and more people are on the latest version of software as well, I think that's, you know, Apple makes a big deal about that for a reason, and this is the reason, or it's one of the reasons anyway. Um, I think as as that older hardware that has been obsoleted is starting to really age out of most, uh, at least most Western consumers, I don't know about developing countries so much, but at least in our you know local experience, uh, people are starting to be able to get onto the train and and that's starting to pick up some steam as well. Yeah, I, I think that's something I I cautiously want to give give Apple some some really good credit for. They they spend a lot of effort on trying to make sure older devices are still able to hang on to the current iOS and and macOS. I can't speak to Windows very well, like what their backwards compatibility is like, and and how many years back they'll support general hardware. But you know, Android is awful. I mean. You know, mm. newer phones usually ship with old versions of the OS and will never get updated. Yeah, all of that stuff on the Android world is kind of lifted up into the applications, hasn't it? You know, if you've got the latest version of this app, you know, a lot of work has to go into the app, whereas in iOS, a lot more of that stuff resides at a system level and the apps just take advantage of it through APIs. It's a, it's a very different model. Yeah. David, I think we should probably wrap up there. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And and I, I kind of feel good. You know, I think the more we talk about this stuff, it's it's a, a an always happier story that we're telling. You know, the world is definitely getting better in terms of cloud storage and, and what we can do with it and how accessible it is from more places. And, and 
I really feel, and I think you do too, that uh, people's work lives are getting better because of this. You know, this is almost in almost every way uh, and uh, a significant improvement on anything that we've had before and the world is definitely getting better this way. Absolutely. I, I feel like we're getting to the point where these these cloud systems are getting reliable enough and, and our networks are getting fast enough that it, it might eventually get to the point where losing a file just isn't possible anymore unless something yeah. really catastrophic happens. But that would be wonderful because the fewer you know, crying tech support calls I have to help a family member with because mm. their hearts are breaking because they lost something and I can't do anything for them, uh, the better. Absolutely. David, thank you for coming on the show. Can you remind people where to find you online if they want to hear more about your writing and your your content? Yeah, the easiest place to probably go because I, I link everything from there is my personal website. So it's my last name, C-H-A-R-T-I-E-R dot land, Chartier dot land. Um, I link, you know, Twitter, my blog, finer things in tech, all that good stuff from there. Excellent. So this has been Canvas episode 67 talking about cloud storage in 2018 and, and how it's affecting our lives and affecting our choices in lots of different ways. You can find show notes for this episode at relay.fm slash canvas slash 67. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. The show is at underscore canvas FM. I'm Fraser Spears. Federico is Vitici, and we'll be back with you next show. <laughs>